Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss, and on the show today, we're doing things a little differently. June marks the 20th anniversary of Talking Animals. I launched a program in June of 2003 at KUCI in Irvine, California, moving to WMNF not quite three years later. 20 is kind of a big anniversary, but owing to a confluence of factors, including my own busy schedule and the summer fun drive earlier this month, I didn't have a chance to plan or produce an anniversary show, much less a string of such shows or a retrospective or anything really to acknowledge two decades of assembling this program. But today I'm going to take a small step in that direction. For example, a few months ago, I thought about some guests I'd like to interview or re-interview for the anniversary, and my initial thought was Jane Goodall, whom I had first interviewed on the show in 2009. I decided to shoot for another interview with Dr. Goodall in June. A tall task given the endless requests for interviews and other demands on her time, not to mention she's 89 years old and uh, has obviously just a tense, busy schedule, hard to say yes to almost any request these days. So imagine my surprise when I landed the opportunity to interview Dr. Goodall in March. So we're going to actually replay that interview in a moment here on Talking Animals on WMNF. And before we reach the end of the hour, we'll present some signature elements of talking animals, including animal comedy, at least one piece, maybe two, some animal songs, possibly by bands with animal names. Also, coming up later in today's program, I'll speak with Drennan Davis, a multi-talented comedian, musician, and sketch player who also makes cat videos. But these aren't just any cat videos, not by a long shot. These short pieces feature his four cats, Newt, Frog, Toad, and Doug, engaged in an assortment of dialogue-driven adventures. Yes, these are talking animals, along with a talking human, although uh, is actually not typically in the videos, it's just the cats. And often the cats are wearing ties or t-shirts, costumes, or other outfits. The videos have become an online sensation, racking up tens of thousands of views each time on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, etc., spawning something of a cat cottage industry. More on this later in today's show when we'll speak with Trenton Davis. Right now, though, let's play back my interview. With uh, Dr. Goodall. This is from late March. This is Dr. Jane Goodall on Talking Animals on WMNF. So we're recording this interview. First of all, let me just say welcome back to Talking Animals, Dr. Jane Goodall. Thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. Of course, of course. And we're recording this interview a day before you're scheduled to give a talk geared for students and educators at the Tampa Theater. Now, of course, you haven't conducted this one yet, but I know you do these kinds of sessions not infrequently. So I'd be very curious to hear your impressions of young people when it comes to their attitudes about animals and the environment. Well, <clears throat> that's my main, you know, thing that keeps me going. Sure. I started the Jane Goodall Institute's Roots and Shoots program back in 1991 with 12 high school students in Tanzania. Now it's in 68 countries growing, members from kindergarten through university. And the change is, I've seen young people's attitudes changing because they're being exposed to the fact 
that animals are sentient beings, which was first brought to the world as a result of films about the chimpanzees. You know, because I was told back in the in the early no, yeah, the early nineteen sixties that we were the only beings on the planet with personalities, the only beings with minds capable of problem solving, and the only beings with emotions. But I think almost anybody who shared their life meaningfully with any animal, dog, cat, horse, bird, knows that that's not true. Yeah, for sure. So what are some of the ways that in the ensuing time since you founded Roots and Shoots there back in 91, these days, what are some ways that are tangible bits of evidence that the way the evolution of those viewpoints by those school kids has really markedly changed? Well, I think, you know, at the beginning, certainly when I was young, you didn't have all these nature clubs. You didn't have young people wanting to change the planet. Um, there wasn't much need when I was young, that we knew of anyway. Uh, forests still stretched across Africa, Asia, Australia. Those forests are now disappearing. And because of the media, through the media, young people are getting to understand what's going on. And it's their future that's at stake. So there's a greater urgency, there's more willingness of young people to roll up their sleeves and take action. So I would guess then that your vision originally for when you founded Roots and Shoots in 91, and it started uh, clearly very small, has been realized in ways that may even have exceeded your hopes for what would come of the organization. Well, I think I have the hope. I've always been, <laughs> I've always had hope. I've always been a a dream. I've always felt if you aim for the stars, you might reach the moon. If you aim for the moon, you might reach the top of Everest. So let's aim for the stars. I, I began Roots and Shoots because even back then, nine, late 1980s, I was traveling around the world and I was meeting so many young people, high school, university, who'd lost hope. And they were either angry, depressed, or mostly just apathetic, not seeming to care. So I, I would, you know, I said to them, you know, why do you feel like this? Well, you've compromised our future and there's nothing we can do about it. So yes, we've compromised their future. In fact, we've been stealing it, but it's not too late. I firmly believe there's a window of time. And if we all get together, we can slow down climate change and loss of biodiversity and change people's attitudes towards animals and, and the environment, help people understand we're part of and not separate from the rest of the natural world. And so, you know, the, the young people get it and they are prepared to roll up their sleeves and take action. And I guess if they are still concerned what kind of counsel do you offer in terms of measures they might take to help mitigate the, the seems like rapidly advancing climate change? Well, it depends on their age, their country, their uh, economic status. You know, routine is very flexible, and it's it, it, we because everything in nature is interrelated. We decided from the beginning, me and these twelve students in Tanzania. Okay, our main message is every individual makes a difference every single day, and we can choose what difference we make. And secondly, because of the interrelatedness, every group would choose three projects. They would choose it themselves, unless they're very young when they need guidance, but older ones, um, a pro project to help people, a project to help animals, 
a project help the environment because it is all so interrelated. Yeah, it makes me think when you talk about the this first group of 12, all these years later, to what extent are some or maybe more than some of that 12 still involved and still are you still in touch with and what, what kind of roles do they play now having started that way as young kids? Well, if I take the original members, not just the 12, but as we grew quite quickly, mm-hmm. many of those from the early 1990s, they're now in decision-making positions, and they seem to hold on particularly to two values. One, respect. Two, compassion. So it's respect for people, for people of other cultures, other religions, other countries, other languages, um, people with different colored skin and so on. Yeah. And compassion for each other and for animals. And really the roots and shoots, I think, could be pointed to, to to really have cultivated those things in those young kids who are now decision makers and leaders of some kind. That's right. That's right. We, we, we've certainly created a number of very courageous and honest leaders already, and we're creating more all the time. That's great. Wow. So beyond the two major events you're doing uh, in Tampa, the area holds additional ongoing significance in that Tampa is the future location of a Roots and Shoots USA base camp. So clearly, I think that gives us some bragging rights. Hey, Dr. Goodall chose Tampa to become a Roots and Shoots USA base camp. What's your city got going for it? We can sort of be a little bit insufferable about that. But this overlooks the fact that at least I don't know so far exactly what a Roots and Shoots USA base camp is or what it will do. Can you fill me in on that? Well, we had base camps way back when, and then uh, the the Jane Goodall Institute at that time, uh, it's completely, you know, we've changed and evolved. They felt they didn't have enough resources and they closed them all down. Mm-hmm. In this case, here in Tampa, the base camp uh, idea was revived by Joe Tattlebaum, whom I met first in China and did roots and shoots in, in China. And so what you need is a person to spearheaded, who understands, who knows what roots and shoots is, passionate. And then you gradually involve uh, teachers or sometimes parents to help spread the word. And of course, some funding is necessary because if you do a a big event at a school, it's going to cost some money. But the idea is that locally, that money will be raised. So it doesn't all hinge on the central office because we couldn't cope with the whole of America providing funds for every school. Right. is kind of responsible for their own fundraising to carry out their activities and events. That's right. And, you know, to ensure that the activities and events, and in some cases, curricula are on, on you know, on target. And yeah. we don't go flying off into all sorts of different areas that aren't part of the, the original philosophy. Right. Stick with kind of the, the, the basic agenda and sensibility and proceed from there. Yeah. So I'd be, I'd be curious, just given the kind of reputation that Florida has and keeps developing. Uh, What kind of qualms did you or or Joe or any other part of the team have about placing a Roots and Shoots USA base camp in a state where clearly at least the governor and some of his policies increasingly seem to reflect intolerance for the LGBTQ community, for immigrants, for just others generally? Just seems like that's be hard to reconcile a little bit with the Jane Goodall ethos. It's exactly why we need to bring our ethos into this state. That's the exact, exact, you know, it's pointless if you just work with people who think the same as you do. For sure. Really, really important to, to have discussions. I know when I first 
uh, wanted to do something about chimpanzee medical research because the conditions were horrendous. I mean, it was the most awful time, almost the worst things I've been through. And going into those labs and seeing these close relatives of ours in five foot by five foot cages, it was horrible. Mm. So I wanted to try and do something, sat down with the, the top people of NIH who were involved in medical research with animals and talked to them. I didn't, I didn't point a finger at them. I didn't tell them they were horrible people. I just showed them slides of the chimps as they are in nature. And I could see people turning inwards and thinking about what was in there compared to what I was showing them. And I actually said to them, I imagine you're all caring and compassionate people and that you probably feel much as I do about what's going on in there. And they could hardly say they weren't caring and compassionate. <laughs> yeah, it'd be a weird denial to make, I guess. Yeah, yeah we're so, not caring and compassionate. No, we're not. Yeah. But because I sat down and talked with them and we actually planned a meeting, which happened, yeah. um, rights people wouldn't talk to me. How could you sit down with those evil people? And I said, how can you expect change if you don't talk to people? Yeah. So it sounds like in some ways, precisely because of some of the issues surrounding Florida and its leadership, this, that was a, one of the very reasons for actually setting a base camp here. That's right. And this is why I, as much as possible, I talk in places where, well, where the situation is, as you said. Yeah, it makes sense. So you kind of touched on the having started the study of, of chimps in Gombe and kind of how that was an important part of your dialogue with people that were keeping them in horrible circumstances. I mean, I think a pretty commonly understood element of the Jane Goodall narrative is that you began in 1960 or there about studying chimps in Gombe, Tanzania. But I think a far less commonly known part of the story is that this research on wild chimps continues today, constituting, I guess, the longest running wild chimpanzee study in the wild. Are there some notable recent or fairly recent findings that you'd like to mention that have still sprung from that ongoing study? Well, you know, first of all, I think it's one of the three longest term studies of any wild animal ever in the world. Oh, wow. That's great. And so basically what we're able to do now because of, you know, some modern technology like DNA analysis from fecal samples, uh, we, we're able to follow down through the gen uh, genealogies and we can start asking questions like, you know, how much of this behavior seems to be inherited and genetic in origin and how much of it seems to be environment like the age-old nature-nurture controversy, mm -hmm. getting to see patterns like that. We're seeing the introduction of new tool using, so the start of a new culture. Uh, we're seeing strange behavior that we've never seen before. For example? For example, um, a male attacking a female, taking her infant, uh, running off with it, and another a uh, male rescuing the infant, but it had already been killed, but mm. take back to the mother. A uh, behavior that we simply don't understand. Very, very strange behavior. And how long ago did that behavior first get recognized? No, oh, this is just very recent. This is like a couple of months ago. Oh, my goodness. Okay, I see. So it'll take a while to try to sort through seeing how often it happens, if it's just an anomaly and so on. Very often it's an individual it's not the whole, it's not common to chimpanzees as a whole. It's this one individual. So now we know, you know, about his antecedents. And is there anything back there that would explain such extraordinary behavior? Yeah. These are the kind of fascinating puzzles. And we have a great team 
of researchers at Gombe. And also one of the virtues of having such a long-standing study that you can go back and say, mm-hmm. well, what, what, what this chimp did this, that seems so odd and out of character. What are his relatives and antecedents? Anything odd that we didn't necessarily remark on then, but we should have maybe flagged. So It also, you know, I was told when I went to Cambridge University back in the early 60s that anecdotes were just to be frowned upon. Well, don't, you can't pay any attention to that. This is just an anecdote, meaning... It's a behavior seen once in one individual. Um, It's still a scientific fact that that individual did it. And because I always felt that a collection of anecdotes tells you a real lot about what's going on. And because of the long-term nature, we can see, well, it seemed to be a one-off, but we've seen it again and we've seen it again and we've seen it again. So collecting anecdotes can tell you so much. Yeah. Well, like you say, if you start to string some of those together, suddenly you've got something that's much more meaningful in terms of drawing a conclusion. So I've always had problems with scientists who said, well, it was just, you just saw it once, so that you you can't use it. It's not meaningful data. You've got to see it lots of times replicated before you can even talk about it. And to me, that's not true. I mean, if a chimp does something highly intelligent, but you've only seen it once or only in that chimp, it gives you an idea of the what the species is capable of. Yeah, that's what the possibilities are are hinted at in that first one. And it has to be that first one to get you to focus on that. So if anything, it triggers some of the more important research, I would think. Right, absolutely. You can then start looking. Yeah. So when's the last time that you had a hankering to venture back to Gombe or or that you were back there? Go back twice a year, but not to do research. Just to be there to to, um, talk with the staff, to get the most recent information. A lot of it comes from our Tanzanian field staff and fortunately women are beginning to join that that little group and we have storytelling sessions stuff that they don't always get into their report because you know they haven't got time but sharing some of these stories and they all get excited so I started that last year and now we've had several of these storytelling uh, events yeah I get to hear the recent stuff I get to meet the people and all around Gombe, because, you know, when I realized that all the trees around the national park had gone, I realized that unless we help the local people find ways of living without destroying their environment, because they were in very poor communities, we started our Takari program. So now they've understood that protecting the environment isn't just for wildlife, it's for their future, that they need the forest. So all the chimpanzees outside the national park are now being protected by the local communities. This is really important, I think, not just for our research, but all wildlife research to have the community involved. It can be the same in the U.S., yeah, no, if they're not part of it, they can't have any kind of stake and they can't be concerned about what's happening next and what the outcome is and all those things, right? This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest is Dr. Jane Goodall, ethologist, activist, and conservationist. First noted for studying chimpanzees in Gombe, Tanzania, as we're discussing at the moment. This interview was recorded last Tuesday when Dr. Goodall was in Tampa for two events. So, Dr. Goodall, speaking of traveling around a bit, after a break imposed by the pandemic, you appear to have resumed a fairly serious travel schedule. Amidst your travels, how often do you get a chance to commune with nature or be amongst animals, apart from things like the the treks to Gombe that you mentioned? Well, unfortunately, not that often, because (laughs) we've got 27 Jane Goodall Institutes 
roots and shoots in 68 countries. And so everywhere I go, you know, I'm wanted for this and this and this. They also usually want me to help fundraise, you know, do some yeah. event, bringing money to the to the organization. Uh, but they do try to give me even even like a few hours to go into a little bit of nearby nature, by a river, look at some uh, animal rescue, like you know, breeding programs. So I I've, I've been able to to fit in a fair amount, but not nearly enough. So I have to go in my own mind back into Gombe. That's what I do. Yeah. Well, especially after that COVID-imposed hiatus and your always busy travel schedule. I mean, how how do you really feel about traveling now? I mean, at this point, I'm, I guess I'm wondering what you get from all the travel. I mean, I understand what we get from it. I heard Jane Goodall speak. I met Jane Goodall. In this case, I get to interview Jane Goodall and so on. But I really wonder what the Jane Goodall part of that equation now reaps from all that activity and all that travel all these years later? Well, I think the number of people who've written to me and said that because they came to a lecture or read a book or something, they they had given up, but now they, they're promising to do their bit. Um, I get letters saying that people have been inspired. I get letters from children uh, saying that they want to help animals and they understand animals better. So because I care so passionately about the environment and about the future, future of my own great-grandchildren's children, you know, um, then this is why I keep doing it, because I know it's making a difference, because they am told all the time that it's made a difference. Otherwise, I wouldn't do it. And there must be now really multiple generations that have had that kind of, felt that kind of impact from your work and your message. And I mean, just last week, when I was interviewing on this show, who's been at the uh, Cornell Lab of Ornithology for 20 some odd years, we, she, we were talking about her history and how she was on an academic path. And she made a reference, which I'm sure you hear all the time, and so have I, about when she was studying her birds and had, had her doctorate, working on her doctorate, that she was sort of starting to feel like a, a Jane Goodall type person. And she, you know, she veered off from a path of academia to, to go to work for the, the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. But I mean, those references are, I don't know how, they, if, if you're still hearing them a lot yourself directly, but I hear them from people of all different ages and all different backgrounds. And that must be inspiring and, and gratifying still all the, to hear that there's always. Yes, it really is. I mean, the number of people who say, uh, you came to my school when I was eight or 10 or whatever. And that's why I'm doing what I do today. It's it's, I think, almost every day. And then every airport, people come up and, uh, you know, I don't know. It's become, I, I I cope with it by knowing there's two Janes, there's me, the one talking to you now, mm -hmm. and then icon that's been developed by the, you know, the, the shows like this, radio programs, geographic magazines, lectures, and so on. And that's the sort of iconic Jane. So this Jane... That's real hard work keeping up with the iconic <laughs> Wow. That's interesting that you really view it as two separate entities. Yeah, I mean, that this this iconic chain, I never wanted that, but I realized early on that this could help me do what I really am passionate about, which is 
you know, saving the world, if you want to put it broadly. Oh, for sure. Well, here, here for the iconic Jane, then, I guess, right? Because if you hadn't made peace with that, I, I don't know how far that this would have gone over the years. Yeah, no, I used to hide from the press. I, I would never have agreed to do an interview with you. I hated it. I was shy. I just wanted to be in the forest with the chimps. Yeah. It wasn't realized that across Africa, forests were going and chimp numbers were decreasing, that I realized, no, you owe it to them. So I emerged and then I've learned to cope with the, well, you could almost say notoriety, couldn't you? <laughs> yeah. Well, again, thank thank goodness for the other Jane Goodall, I guess, right? So yeah. When you're not on the road and there are no interviews or other obligations scheduled, What's an ideal day for you? Well, an ideal day would be to be at Gombe out in the forest by myself in nature. That's the ideal day. Yeah. Very rare. Still. Very rare. So many people during the pandemic, I was, as I say, grounded at home in the UK. Yeah. And they said, such a relief. You can sit back and think and maybe do some writing. I've never been as busy in my whole life. I've never been as exhausted because I was doing like four Zoomed interviews or lectures a day all over the world. I didn't have one day off, one weekend off, one holiday in two years. So it was actually more grueling through the pandemic when people might otherwise have thought intuitively that you'd have some bigger breaks just because you weren't on the road. And see, like yesterday, traveling from wherever we were, I can't remember, somewhere back to Chicago and then getting a plane from Chicago to, to here. That was the day with no lectures, no, just a few phone calls from the car. That was it. So that was a day off. But still involving quite a bit of activity. Yeah. yeah but not like those constant Zooms. Yeah. No, it sounds like the Zooms really got to you. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you doing this one. I have just another moment or two. I know we have to uh, wrap up soon. One of the things I think I read somewhere that you have a whiskey every night, which I think is a great ritual. Now, is there a way for someone to ever join you in that ritual? Like, like for example, a radio host, I'm just thinking off the top of my head. Well, the, the way it began was because my mother couldn't drink wine and she didn't like water, um, but she loved a little tot of whiskey. Mm -hmm. And so when I began this traveling, uh, we said, okay, it's seven o'clock, not, not the actual seven in real time, but seven o'clock for her, seven o'clock for me. We'll raise a glass and toast each other. And so that became a sort of ritual and other people wanted to join in. Um, and we also drank a little toast to those who preceded us. We said up in the clouds, the cloud contingent. And so every night at seven, there are people all over the world um, drinking a toast to each other, to their deceased loved ones, to their parents, to me. And it's really become a ritual. But the other thing, and this is true, uh, opera singers, folk song singers, uh, a man who mic'd up at a huge music festival, he said to me, Jane, 30% of all the singers I mic up want a little tot of whiskey for their voice before they go on stage. Sometimes I cannot get through a lecture because my voice got so overused. Mm. Doing, and whiskey, does, it, it, I think it tightens your vocal cords. It's medicinally proved. Yeah, I like that. I think there's a lot of people who would like to say, I heard Dr. Goodall say this is medicinally approved, so uh, cheers, <laughs> belly up, right? Bottoms up, yeah. Bottoms up, not, not belly up. That's something... Okay, yeah. Belly up to the bar for bottoms up. I guess I got my two things confused, but uh, that's great. Well, Dr. Goodall, I think we have kind of reached the end of our time, but I really appreciate you making 
the time to join us here on Talking Animals. And again, there's for people who want to look for more information, there's the janegoodall.org website and the rootsandshoots.org website and all kinds of other social media locations and all kinds of other places. So thank you so much for joining us again on Talking Animals. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Well, thanks. It was great talking to you. Thank you very much. All right, that was Jane Goodall, Dr. Jane Goodall on Talking Animals on WNF recorded in late March. She was uh, here in Tampa. In a moment, I'll uh, talk. We're coming up on the show, maybe not in a moment, but coming up on the show, I'll talk with multi-talented comedian Drennan Dana, D- Davis about the fabulous cat videos he makes and posts online at TikTok and other platforms. These are actually like many movies highlighted by sparkling dialogue amongst Davis's four cats and Davis himself also distinguished by stellar costume design often the cats are wearing ties or t-shirts costumes or other outfits we'll hear about these videos maybe some backstage gossip or other tidbits about the cats Newt, Frog, Toad and Doug when I speak with Drennan Davis in just a little bit from now here on Talking Animals on WF right now though we're going to step into the comedy corner with John Mulaney and a piece called Baby Grandma Animal Comedy being a signature piece of Talking Animals from the very beginning 20 some years ago so this is John Mulaney Baby Grandma in today's Comedy Corner on Talking Animals on WMNF my wife and I don't have any children we have a dog we have a little puppy named Petunia she's a tiny little French bulldog puppy I like having a puppy that's a bulldog because it's like having a baby that is also a grandma. Her, her body is young, her face is as old as time. She definitely saw the Nazis march into Paris. She always gives me this look of like, oh, the things I have seen. You have no idea. The Gestapo threw my printing press into a river. But go tell your jokes. Bring me my dish. She said that. Petunia Petunia is my best friend in the world. I give her a million kisses a day. She does not like me and barks at me and bites me all day long. We had to get a dog trainer into the apartment because Petunia is a bad dog. We tell her that every day. We go, hey, you're bad at being a dog. So the trainer came into the apartment. Sorry, didn't even walk into the apartment. Walked into the threshold and went, oh, okay. (laughs) Like she was an exorcist or something. She said, I see what the problem is. She said, Petunia has become the alpha of the house. And then she pointed at me. She said, you are no longer the alpha of the house. And in the back of my head, I was like, I was never the alpha of the house. I turned to my wife. I was like, let's pretend. It'll be fun. Yes, I oh, my title of alpha, which I once had. How could I reclaim it? Because that was a thing that existed at one time. She said, you need to show dominance over your puppy. These are things people say to me. I said, how do I do that? She said, well, let me ask you this. Who eats dinner first, you or Petunia? I was like, Petunia eats dinner first. She eats dinner at 5 p.m. because she's a foot long and two years old. She said, no, you need to eat dinner first because the king eats before anyone else eats. Oh, yes. And what a mighty king I will be eating dinner at 4.45 in the afternoon. Ah, ha, ha, ha! Look upon your sovereign, Petunia, and tremble! My lands stretch across this entire one bedroom, and I eat dinner whenever I 
shoes as long as it works for the schedule of a dog. She said, no, you don't actually have to eat dinner before Petunia. You just have to convince Petunia that you've already eaten. So, for the past month, before my wife and I give Petunia her dish, we take down empty bowls and spoons, and in front of her we go, mmm, dinner! Mmm, good dinner! Like we're space aliens in a play about human beings that they wrote but they didn't work that hard on. Mmm, we're eating dinner. Meanwhile, Petunia's just staring at us with her Paul Giamatti face, like... You're not eating dinner. Dish now. That's John Elaney in today's Comedy Corner with a piece called Baby Grandma, taken from his album The Comeback Kid. This is Talking Animals on WNF. We're uh, sort of lightly, maybe even barely, uh, acknowledging the 20th anniversary of the show with uh, some odds and ends here, some things that are typical of the show, animal comedy. Another course is um, animal songs, which we don't do as much of in recent years when we started adding a brief second interview to the show, but it's still definitely uh, an important part of the overall Talking Animals operation. And occasionally, it's not only an animal song, it's an animal song by an animal band. And we've had a particular affection over the years for the eels, who are, of course, an animal band with more than a few animal songs in their catalog. And uh, we actually interviewed singer-songwriter E on uh, Talking Animals and and, and on a music show separately at a different time here on WNF over the years. And uh, just a really great singer-songwriter, great frontman, excellent live band. And a lot of what his writing is about, as with many songwriters, of course, is sort of romantic longing and the pain of relationships that have ended. In his case, there's often animal images and metaphors and uh, all kinds of other animal-related imagery that uh, he uses to uh, deliver those songs. So I feel like that'd be doubly fitting for today's show. So this is The Eels with Little Bird here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Little bird hopping on my porch No, it sounds kind of sad But what's it all for? Right now you're the only friend I have in the world And I just can't take out very much Goddamn I miss that girl Little bird You look alright I'm sure it's not easy Getting through your night So tell me this can't be how it's gonna end Tell me my heart somehow Dear God, it's gonna mend 
That's the Eels with Little Bird here on Talk Animals from the album End Times. Coming up on uh, WNF, we'll continue public affairs programming into the noon hour, so from noon to one. And then right after that, we shift back to music programming with Jim Bannon holding forth from one to three, followed by Robin and Cassie from three to six. Then our terrific Wednesday night block of Latin music kicks in. So all that's coming up here on WNF. Meanwhile, later on today's show, we'll have that interview with Trenton Davis all about these incredible camp videos that you should check out if you haven't had a chance. But let's hear what he has to say about them coming up a little bit later. But first, um, on this show, we want to get into Name That Animal Tune, another signature element from the very, very first show. So as the prize for Name That Animal Tune, I'll be offering something fabulous from the Talking Animals Vault. To the first person who calls 813-239-9663 and correctly identifies this animal song, it's named that animal tune on Talking Animals on WMNF. Take those guesses off the air as Talking Animals continues now on WMNF. And we're going to probably step back into the comedy corner with a bonus piece. Two, two pieces, rare, rare occurrence here on Talking Animals. But um, we do like our animal comedy and we like our animal songs. And uh, so we're going to... Uh, Jump back in with a piece, brief piece by Robert Schimmel called Punching a Shark in the Nose, today's comedy corner on Talking Animals on WNF. My brother scuba dives, he goes, oh, you know what you do if a shark's bothering you? Bothering? You need to look in a dictionary, pal. Bother. It really bothers me when you shear my legs off at the hips. I find it very bothersome to get back to shore with my torso snapped in half. 
He said, what you do is you let the shark get up to you and then you punch him in the face. Yeah, and then when that doesn't work, you poke him in the eye with your stump. Punch a shark, what if he wasn't even going to attack you? What if he's just curious and he's swimming by and he goes, hey, what the f***? What'd you do that for? I thought you were going to attack me. I'm going to now. I was going to let you go, but the other sharks are watching. It doesn't look good now. All right, so that was Robert Schimmel, the late, great Robert Schimmel, today's Comedy Corner, with a short piece called Punching a Shark in the Nose, taken from one of his live performances back in the day. So, anyways, we are going to uh, continue. And uh, coming up, it's going to be Drennan Davis talking about his cat videos, which, again, are great, great, great. It's a real treat. If you haven't seen them before, you'll... uh, I think you'll be quite excited and amused to see this, uh, these camp videos. But we'll hear from Drennan about how the idea came to be and his cats and some of the storylines and uh, some of the other stuff momentarily here on Talking Animals. In fact, I'm going to uh, contact Drennan now while we uh, continue this on Talking Animals on WNL. It's time now to speak with comedian Drennan Davis about his fanciful, irresistible videos, hugely popular on TikTok and elsewhere, starring Davis. And Well, he actually doesn't star. He's not on screen, but he's very much a star in the off-screen kind of way. And, of course, his four cats are the stars. And in these pieces are often sporting spiffy attire and are always talking. They're talking animals, so, of course, it makes sense to welcome Drennan Davis on Talking Animals on WNO. Good morning, Drennan. Hi, Duckett. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks for joining us on Talking Animals. So let's let's start off figuring many listening are amongst the uninitiated, but probably not yeah. for long, in the ways of these cats, Doug, Newt, Frog, and Toad. So maybe you could yeah. just describe, I have a, a few times along the way in the lead up to our conversation, but still maybe it's best if you describe in sort of broad terms what happens in any sort of given clip. Oh, yeah. Uh, so uh, I, have, um, I have four cats. Um, I got two over the pandemic. I wanted to get one, and somehow that made sense to get two. I got talked into two, and then uh, I uh, I moved to a new house um, after the pandemic. I was basically living in this giant warehouse, went a little crazy, built a whole cat city, 
realized this warehouse. It was like one of Jim Henson's old warehouses where he'd make commercials. I thought it was a great place. Oh, wow. I losing my mind. Yeah, yeah. I ended up losing my mind a little bit. Moved into a regular house. A couple of kittens showed up, like, uh, a couple of weeks into me moving there. Um, and it was like everyone already had their kittens, so I didn't know how to give them homes. Everybody... They all had their pandemic cats already, so I ended up with four cats in like an amount of like a year, I think. And uh, from then, I was just like, I don't know what to do uh, with all these cats. Started making these really stupid videos of just me, um, you know, dubbing their voices. Um, and it kind of ended up being this mix of like a Alvin and the Chipmunks and a Garfield <laughs> kind of thing. Where, um, it's basically like my id and, and my super ego. Um, and the orange cats are my id, and they just scream at me all the time. And Doug is this kind of lower-voiced, uh, uh, I guess, voice of reason. All right. Well, I think you may be understating uh, when you describe at least the, the cross and what, what it are. You might be understating kind of what happens because there's a lot going on, and there is yeah. a lot of uh, overlapping dialogue amongst the cats and yourself. And... Um, and although this is actually kind of addressed in, in, in one or more clips, what's what's the history, beyond the history you just described of how the cats came to live with you, uh, and you mentioned, like, you started making videos, but but what prompted the initial idea? Well, like, were you just sitting there saying, well, I've got these cats here. I, I ended up with four somehow. Um, I guess I should make videos? Or how did, how did, how did what, what was the process there? Yeah, so, I mean, it started actually, um, you know, um, through stand-up, I, I ended up, learning how to do a lot of impressions. So I do a lot of uh, uh, musician impressions and celebrities. And through that, I was like, well, maybe I can do these one-word impressions that the cats can do. I can scream some impressions at them, let them do, um, I don't know, Owen Wilson. And so <laughs> their their mouth opens, and then they say, wow, wow. Or, um, you know, uh, Jerry Seinfeld. And I would just have them do this one word, and and it kind of took off from there, and people started sending in requests. So, for the I would say for like the first couple of months, it was just cats doing impressions. Uh, yeah. Whether whether it was a singing one like a like a, a Morrissey or something, where it was like hi, <laughs> and it just kind of kept going like that um, until I I didn't I, I was out of impressions, and so. It, and then I was like, all right, well, what if we... What? And it was just a bunch of experiments until um, it was full-on storylines of them yelling at me on uh, what they wanted for Christmas and to write uh, Santa uh, uh, a letter. And then from there, I was just like, well, let's, let's just... I kept pushing it, and it just got weirder and weirder, and, the, you know, it just kept... I and now I feel like I just jump sharks for a living, but it doesn't <laughs> seem like... It, it doesn't seem like anyone cares. I, I, I literally try to jump sharks Every single day, and it, yeah. <laughs> well, that's that's not usually the goal in uh, showbiz. No, by the no. way, I, I, you probably know this, but uh, that's hilarious that that's how you describe it. Because uh, to me, they, you know, they uh, like you're just stepping into like this great world, and um, I mean, I don't, I, I know magicians don't tell their secrets, but some of the times when they're when they're moving their mouths, because again, as far as I know, none of this, it's all just natural. You're just filming what they're doing. Right there's there's no there's no uh, effects no. right yeah but you can't really get cats to do things you want them to do so it's really they're they're directing it and I just kind of take lead. But see that's that. that's all the more if if you if you're any kind of a cat person, and you suspect that that's the case, you think how is how is Doug talking right now 
when it's pivotal to the scene, and yet he is. And, yeah, uh, yeah. They're very talkative cats, yeah, in, in that way. Um, so this was kind of my way to, uh, uh, I don't know, find a little sanity, because they are yelling at me constantly. <laughs> and then are they, whenever you go somewhere, do they, they always just sort of gather around? Because that seems to be also be kind of a common element that uh i don't know if you've got food or something in your hand sometimes or if they're just coming because you the uh the ugly giant as i guess you're now known uh has yeah. has entered the room yeah i mean it's it's really a, a you know it it depends on what they're yelling at me for um but yeah like one of them is just talking to me all the time whether i'm picking them up newton so we kind of have a little bit of a, a ventriloquist act where um you know i pick them up he starts talking, but it's like having a puppet that I don't know what's gonna do, <laughs> and then I have to, and then I have to kind of figure out the the dialogue as we go along. Even though I didn't really plan anything, and he's kind of running the show. It's, yeah, it's, it's a lot like being a ventriloquist, but not knowing what your dummy's gonna say. Yeah, with the rogue, with the rogue dummy, I guess. Yeah, but yeah, uh... <laughs> yeah. I'm the dummy, though. So. <laughs> well, again, I think we're starting to see a theme here as you describe how this all works. But um, <laughs> yes. so now, Key Elmo, which I kind of mentioned just a moment ago, is the uh, is the spiffy ties and outfits the cats wear, security right. uniforms, etc. Did you initially think when you first, like, maybe I don't know if the tie was first or uh, like this would just be a one shot thing? Like, hey, I'm just going to put a tie on them and what happened, and then. Just kept going, or how did? I mean, did you think originally? Yeah, basically, this is a, it's just been a, a series of experiments. Yeah, and um, you know, I put some ties on them, and suddenly they just really took this like uh, you know late stage capitalist cat character <laughs> and and ran with it, and um, we've had a lot of fun with that one. People really respond well to that, whether it's just like you know people who love business or people who love to make fun of business. Um, either way, it, um, yeah, that, that one seems to resonate really quite a lot. Um, so that one's kind of a re reoccurring. It's, it's kind of turned into, I used to do, like, I used to do comics when I was younger and, um, it, it, it feels like a lot of like sketch comedy or, or, or comics in the, in the way where there's a lot of reoccurring, uh, uh, segments. That, oh yeah, for yeah. sure. And, uh, but it seems like the costumes and and the, uh, different things kind of keep 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 expanding. I mean, yes, there's the business cat, yeah. the business cat attire, but you know, and then obviously Christmas is important with Santa, et cetera. But uh, sure. seems seems like there's you know a number of other things that are that are uh, being introduced. And uh, oh yeah, they well they, right now they have a um, they all have patriotic tutus. So <laughs> um, we've been we've been exploring that for Pride this month. And, yeah. And, Getting ready to be patriotic for next month, so it's it's like a a one two punch. And now I guess people uh, who see these things and say, "Hey, those look those look really cool. Maybe I should get a, a tie or a business mm -hmm. outfit for my uh, my cat." Uh, I guess people can, um, you know, yeah, we buy have, those. Well, we're actually sold out of them, believe it or not. And but oh, we're wow. A new, we're getting a new batch, and they're getting made right now. But, yeah, we have cat shirts and lots of merch. Um, yeah, that's that's been um, – it's been really funny to see that take off and, and see how many cats wearing ties because they tag me. And so it's just like this full – 
crew of business cats all over the world. It's hilarious. So people have gotten ties from you, a la your cats, and then they're showing you pictures and tagging you with their cats wearing the, the ties that they have gotten from you. Yeah, it's like a it's that's great. Like this inside inside joke of a bunch of business cats. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. Well, where people with people listening sound like we're sort of between uh, inventory, but when when there are more of those available, where would people go to uh, to maybe think about getting their own cat attire and ties, etc.? Yeah, you can go to businesscats.com. The thing is, is my cats do not spell well, so they did not spell business correctly. So it's B U I S. N-E-S-S. I see. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I imagine if you search for it, it would probably come up at this point. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure, yeah. So, now, on, on a different animal note, but very much related, uh, Jeff the Opossum is, oh, yeah. a, is a great sort of neat offshoot story. Um, can you talk a little bit about how Jeff came into the picture? Sure, yeah. So, when I moved to this, this area, it's, um, it's very suburban and uh but it's got like a its own little ecosystem and uh there's a lot of stray cats around um and they all get fed i live by a lot of old ladies and they love feeding the strays and it's very old school in that way um and there's possums and raccoons and there are coyotes we don't love seeing those around Mm, but um you know they gotta live too uh, but yeah, these really friendly, cute opossums that kind of just show up every year. And, um, uh, one of the baby ones found his way into, uh, my house one day. And I was wondering why all the cats were just staring in a corner. Um, and yeah. And, and so we kind of nursed it back to health. And now I, now I have an opossum that lives in my backyard and I end up feeding that every day. And it's got his own, he's got his own little, um, uh, camera, so I, I'll post uh, videos of that for people to check out. And um, but yeah, so Jeff, Jeff's so well. Jeff's doing well. Jeff's doing well. not only is Jeff doing well, I'm pretty sure I'm feeding three Jeffs. Now. Oh, okay. Because um, yeah, at one point you said there was Jeff hanging out with a, with a woman, and you thought I I think Jeff might be female, as it turns out after all. But the only reason I was yeah. a little ginger asking this a little bit gingerly is because I think at one point you also mentioned that uh, possums don't have, uh, like, a very long life expectancy, which, so I was hoping I wasn't, I wasn't going to walk in anything, you know, dark here accidentally. But uh, Yeah, well, and I, I kind of thought that uh, the, more, the more I've, uh, the more of these videos I put out, the more I learned, just because there's a lot of opossum fans out there. And, um, yeah, from all the research I was reading, they only live about a year, which is kind of sad. But the more you take care of them, they can live up to three, five years so wow. you know um yeah I'm, I'm trying to do my, my best and and take care of the the small ecosystem that we have you know we've, we've done a number on nature already so i'm just trying to do my part i guess that's great well drennan we have reached the end of our time but we've been speaking with drennan davis it's d-r-e-n-n-o-n davis so you can search search that way or search for business cats or search for all kinds of other things Take you to this TikToks, his uh, Instagram, his YouTube, and other things. So thank you so much, uh, Jonah, for joining us and all your great videos. Thank Appreciate you, it. Duncan. Take care, yeah, man. Have a good one. You too. You too. Talking animals on WNF Tampa. Thanks.